Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and this is week two of our summer series, Faith That Works, where we are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of James, which we set up last week. And if you missed that sermon, I highly recommend you go back and catch it on our podcast or Vimeo page because we went through a lot of what this book is about. But in particular, we explored how James is this unique, practical, in-your-face, no-nonsense letter from the New Testament. One that gets real about one specific relationship, and that is the relationship between faith and works. The balance between ideas and actions. James believes this is critical. For him, faith in Jesus can't just be about head knowledge, having the right ideas. If it's genuine faith, it must be active and transformative here and now. A faith that works for and on us and for others in concrete And we saw last Sunday that James has this thesis statement at the conclusion of chapter one, where we find within it this belief of his, that this true, genuine faith is defined by what he calls hearing and then becoming doers of Jesus' teachings, especially this one central teaching of Jesus that you guys have probably heard of, Jesus' great commandment to fully love God and our neighbor as ourselves. James is convinced that the true intended purpose of religion is to make us into people who hear Jesus' teaching on divine love and then become doers of it in our world, especially when it comes to how we treat others. The whole letter comes back to this belief that in following Jesus, love is fundamentally a verb. One, that from here on out, he is going to set out applying to concrete, tangible issues of our lives, which is why I love this letter. It's so practical. It's so universal. It speaks to us today as much as it did to his original audience. And this week, we dive into the next major reoccurring theme of the letter. But first, I want to sit with something that was ever present in my childhood, the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was a show my dad adored. That's why it was always on. And it was a sci-fi TV show from the 50s and 60s comprised of short, dark stories that concluded usually with a major twist and some sort of moral commentary. And there's one episode in particular that seems to pop into my head just about every month. It's called A Nice Place to Visit. Does anyone know this episode? No spoilers if you do. This episode is amazing. It centers around a small-time, selfish, down-on-your-luck criminal named Rocky Valentine, who, while robbing a pawn shop, is shot by the police. However, Rocky wakes up unharmed in a strange place where he's greeted by this quaint old man named Pip. First, Rocky, as he is wont to do, tries to rob Pip, but Pip laughs at him and tells him that Rocky can have all the money he wants giving him $700 out of nowhere like that. Then Rocky tries to shoot Pip, but it has no effect. What's going on? Well, Pip proceeds to explain that Rocky can have anything he desires in this world. Luxurious apartments, expensive suits, lavish meals, the whole world belongs solely to him. 
Everything and everyone within it are just figments for Rocky to do with as he pleases. So naturally, Rocky concludes that he's died and gone to heaven. From there, Rocky lives the life he always dreamed of. Women appear on demand. He exacts vengeance on these figments of his old enemies. He gambles and wins every single hand. It's a dream come true. Well, except for one month passes, and we find that Rocky is miserable. With every whim instantly satisfied, there's no joy. There's no life. He asks Pip if there can be any other real people. Pip says no. He asks for real chance in gambling, to which Pip asks him what percentage of his bets he wants to lose, which kind of defeats the purposes if you know the exact odds you're going to get. He asks to rob a bank, but even that is unfulfilling because there's no actual risk. Rocky finds no joy in any of it. Finally, Rocky breaks down, realizing that he will go insane. He proclaims that he can't stay in heaven one more day. He pleads with Pip to be taken to what he calls the other place. To which Pip retorts, heaven? Whatever gave you the idea that you were in heaven, Mr. Valentine, this is the other place. And the episode closes with Rocky frantically trying to escape his paradise while Pip laughs and laughs and laughs. I mean, come on, y'all. That is great storytelling, isn't it? I mean, this episode is dope. (laughs) And it speaks actually to where James is going to take us today. This theme that forms a central piece of our human experience. That is everyone's favorite topic, suffering. The experience of suffering is universal. Our first experience as babies is not joy. After living for nine months in this nice warm liquid, we are suddenly birthed into bright light and a sudden rush of cold air into our lungs. And what's the first thing we do? We cry. Suffering is part of life in this world. And yet, what this episode captures so poignantly is that we avoid accepting that truth at all costs. We tell ourselves in so many different ways that suffering can and should be avoided and denied. That the dream life is minimizing or outright escaping suffering while maximizing our comfort. But escaping suffering fully is impossible. And quite frankly, our attempts to do so don't create heaven in our lives. They create its opposite. They create that other place. How we understand and respond to the suffering of our life is incredibly important. It directs so much of what we think about ourselves, God, others, how we act in this world. And thus, we shouldn't be surprised at all that James spends a great deal of time talking about suffering, what he is going to call trials. He believes that disciples of Jesus are called to understand and respond to suffering in a radically different way, not as something that can and should be escaped, but something that can and should be transformed and redeemed, turned into a tool through Jesus, maturing what this whole life as disciples is all about 
increasingly loving God and neighbor as ourselves. We return to James chapter one, verse two, where he writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James tells his audience to consider their present trials, their suffering, as an occasion for joy. Who here stepped on a Lego recently and said, hallelujah, praise Jesus, the good life? It's strange, right? And it's even more perplexing when you think about his audience. James pastored a community experiencing extreme poverty, oppression, and persecution. They didn't step on a Lego. They're going through the ringer, which is captured in the language that he uses. This phrase, face trials, in Greek is not stepping on a Lego. It describes an unexpected encounter that takes someone well, and I mean well, beyond their means. It's actually, fun fact, used, for example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. For when someone unexpectedly falls into the hands of robbers and they beat him half to death. James is talking about real, unexpected, out of our control suffering. And notice he doesn't say if we experience this or why we might experience this. He just says when you experience this. He assumes trials are part of life in this world, that they are to be accepted. So he shifts from asking why to asking how. How should disciples of Jesus suffer? How can we respond to trials in a way that makes them into occasions for joy? That's where we're going today. And he uses four terms to lay out faith, how faith can work in our suffering. Trial, faith, perseverance, mature, complete. And each builds on the one before it in the passage. It's actually really, really cool how he does this. So first, there's a trial, an unexpected suffering in our life. Second, James says, see it as a test of faith, our trust in God. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. What are tests supposed to do other than make you really annoyed in high school? Well, see what you know. That's great. Tests, ideally, are supposed to reveal whether we know and can reproduce something that we've learned. So James says, shift your focus from why to how. This trial is here, accept reality as it is. You can't deny it. But then ask, how can I respond to it in a way that reveals my trust in God? Which leads to the third point, perseverance which we looked at last week. This word means committing to put something into practice consistently no matter what you're facing. How can we respond in a way that displays our trust of who God is and how he operates? We choose to respond how he would, how he teaches us to. You trust Jesus' teachings, James asks, so put them into action in the hardest moment of your life. Treat your trial as the practice ground for living out how Jesus called you to live in this world. Persevere, develop that ability to stay true to Jesus and what he tells us to do in this life. And finally, James promises that if we persevere, it will produce what he calls maturity and completeness. 
growing to the point of lacking nothing in terms of character. And who do you think James believes is the perfect model for mature, complete character? Sunday school answer. Jesus! Scott McKnight, one of my favorite authors, summarized this in this way. He says, what we see here is that James is encouraging believers to look through, not at their trials. To entrust, look through the specific circumstances they're facing to the potential promised impact on their lives if they stray true to Jesus' teachings within them. Look through the trial to the growth, the maturity, the completeness, to becoming more like Jesus on the other side of it. He says, this is what happens if you respond to your trials with this how focus in this right way. But obviously that's easier said than done. So James continues, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Seeing through trials is hard. So James says, ask God for wisdom, the capacity and the ability to discern God's will and to act as he would within that trial. He says, God is single-mindedly generous. He gives freely. He will give you wisdom if you seek it if you ask for it, which sounds so great, doesn't it? Until you read about what Jesus said true wisdom was, what he said would sound foolish to the world. It includes things like laying down our lives for others, responding to violence with peace and non-retaliation, rejecting power, status, and wealth as the pathway to the good life. And above all for James, no matter what, fully loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. You see, for James, asking for wisdom is the same as asking for the ability to stay true to Jesus' teachings when all pressure pushes us to do otherwise. James says, you want to see through suffering to experience maturity? Well, here's what you do. Ask God, how can I respond to this trial in a way that fully loves you and neighbor? How can I respond to this trial in a way that teaches me greater self-sacrifice, greater surrender, greater peacemaking, greater justice in how I live my life? Ask for and commit to living out God's wisdom as taught and embodied by Jesus in your trial and with single-mindedness trust that you will receive what you requested. Does that mean not suffering or escaping the trial altogether? No, obviously not. It means the receiving the wisdom to align with God's will within it, led through it in a way that produces something more than just pain. It produces growth, Christ-likeness. That's wisdom, according to James. And he's, as he is wont to do, James provides a snarky contrast to doing this. Or, you can be what he calls double-minded. Someone who in some areas trusts God, but in others does not. Who in trials rejects God's ways, choosing not to love him wholeheartedly or their neighbor as themselves. 
James says this is like being out at sea amidst great winds, which at his time, they didn't have the naval capacity that we do. So that was a very dangerous situation to find yourself in. He believes this is incredibly precarious. In trials, what happens is this person hears God's wisdom, but it's too hard, or they just don't like it. So they go their own way. They trust their own wisdom. They respond how they want to, to the trial. They abandon Jesus's teachings. And instead of maturing what happens to them, they are swallowed up by the trials of this life. That's the two paths, according to James. And having laid out these two paths, he closes with a practical example that his audience would have understood. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the, the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood a test, that person will receive the crown of life promised to those who love him. And I'm going to be brief because we're going to spend an entire Sunday on this economic theme later in the series. But economic suffering was the most important and most pressing issue for the Jesus movement, especially in Jerusalem during Jesus's, or James's day. So what does he do? He applies his teaching directly to it. To the lowly, the impoverished, the oppressed, he says, accept this trial as a test of your trust in God, your trust in his ways, how he says this world works. Remember that Jesus taught that in his kingdom, it's the lowly who are exalted, who are closest to God, who are closest to the kingdom while the powerful are humbled in his story. Persevere in that wisdom. Allow your commitment to Jesus' teachings, allow that to reshape your response to what you're going through. And I promise you that you will mature in being more like him on the other side, more loving, more peaceful, more just, more compassionate, more generous. Through that, he says, you'll find something worth far more than the riches of this life. You'll find the eternal, full, abundant life offered by God and promised to his children at the end of his story. This life directed by divine wisdom that allows us to with full confidence come before God and to have this deep inner confidence that he is working redemptively in and through us in this world. This life that grows ever more deeper into love. James says that is the crown you'll get through these hard circumstances if you just stay true. Meanwhile, the rich, he says, miss this true blessing. They can't find this valid, beautiful reason to find joy in their trials. He says to the rich who wield economic oppression, what they believe exalts them will prove to be their humiliation. Harsh words. But, what he's getting at is instead of living fully for love of God and love of neighbor, they live to increase their riches, to increase their comfort. They believe that's what this life is about, whether it creates suffering for others or not. And yet what happens when the heat of life grows? What they've invested their life in, all this stuff, it will fade, it will wither. 
They've placed their trust in what won't last, what can't complete them, what in the end of this life when we all face death won't be able to come with them. He says they've made this their ground, the bedrock for stability in their life. And it's something that is incapable of providing that stability through suffering. And I don't know about you, but I have found that to be quite true in my life. And what happens is they've missed that gift of maturity that Christ offers us if we would just allow suffering through Jesus to become something redemptive. And y'all, I think that's so countercultural. I mean, we're told that the good life is minimizing suffering, maximizing comfort. Advertisements sell us every luxury. They promise us that if we could just get that next thing, then we'd be complete. Then we'd escape suffering. The new car, the new watch, the new shoes. And y'all, it's a lie. If we believe that is the ground that we can stand on through suffering, we will end up like Rocky or the rich in James's eyes, getting everything we desired only to find ourselves still incomplete. Standing on what fades and withers under the trials of life, loss, grief, death, failure, suffering. I want to stand on something different. I don't want to miss the redemption of allowing God to redeem and transform me through my suffering. How about you? And I want to ground this. You know, James intends for faith to work here and now, and this teaching is no exception. This is not something that lives in the clouds in James's mind. And I can't give you a one-size-fits-all plan, like Mike's pastoral four-step plan to not suffering so much. Your trials aren't mine. Everyone's trials are unique, they're complex, which is why James tells every believer to ask God for wisdom in them, not ask Mike for wisdom in them. But I can tell you what this looks like for me. This teaching, and God winks at us all the time, this teaching is so personal for me this week. In this season, I have found myself going through three major unexpected trials that have taken me beyond my means. I mean, there's more, but no one wants Mike's laundry list of like self-pity. First, one of my dearest friends and the most important spiritual figure in my life was diagnosed with cancer. Second, my 21-month-old daughter got COVID, and she is doing much better. And thank God Ricky and I were vaccinated because we never got it, but it was scary how sick she got. And third, then there's Hank. This is my dog, Hank. This dog has been with me through everything this decade. I mean everything. Rock bottom, seminary, meeting my wife, marrying my wife, having our child. And last week, Ricky and I found out that he has terminal stomach cancer. <sighs> and there's just nothing we can do to fix it. He is going to die. And all we can do is keep him comfortable until we can. And what I have found is that even still today, my go-to question when I suffer is why? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? And what I have also found is that when I obsess over why 
all I do is sit in my pain and I don't change. I think there's two reasons for that. One, honestly, there isn't an answer for why that I will find satisfactory while I still hurt. And second, knowing why doesn't actually make suffering easier. Knowing why cancer exists doesn't actually make my grief any less painful. My wisdom asks why. And all that does is it leads me into denial, self-pity, self-centeredness, and anger at my situation, which, guess what, doesn't help me or the person hurting in front of me. All it does is make me sick. It does not work. And what James encourages me here, what he has taught me through this passage, what he exhorts us to do has proven to be the only thing in any season of my life that has ever actually worked in suffering to produce something good for myself and others. This shift from why to how. Trust, persevere, see through it, ask for wisdom, and act like Jesus would in that situation, no matter how you feel or what you want. To say, God, this hurts. It sucks. I am not in control. I cannot fix this. I accept that but I do not know what to do. Give me your wisdom. How can I respond in a way that fully loves you and others? How can I become more like you through this? That's the only way I have ever found redemptive potential and tangible acts of love in the seasons of my life where I hurt, when I suffer. I can't take my friend's cancer away but I can be like Christ to the one who has it. God, how can I be like you alongside them through this trial? How can I give them companionship in their pain like they've given me so often in mine? How can I ease their fear and bring them some modicum of peace through how I respond to their ordeal? Show me how to love like you, and I will commit to practicing that in this trial. My daughter is sick. God, how can I lay myself, my ego down? Give myself fully to the scared, confused, hurting baby. How can I bring your comfort to her? Show me how to be a father like you. I commit to practicing that in this trial. <sighs> or my dog, Hank. I can't save like I said, he's going to die. It's not if, it's when. But with God's help, maybe I can accept, not fear that. Maybe I can be grateful that he's not gone yet. Maybe I can be present with him until the end, like he's always been for me. Give back what I've been given. Spoil and love the hell out of that dog and not miss what time I have left. And that I get what James considers true blessing. It's not more stuff. It's not escaping this. It's this life of compassion, presence, peace, love, this life with more of Christ and less of me in it. That's the good life. That's what I want. That's a faith that works.
And y'all, it's hard. I'm not the master. I'm not Jesus of Nazareth. Every single hour I slip between acceptance and denial. But maybe discipleship isn't about hating my imperfection. Maybe it's about maturing in Christ. Maybe it's about the willingness to allow God through these trials to shrink the gap between why and resolving myself to how. Maybe it's about believing in and acting on the simple truth that God is good, he is generous, he is loving, and that if I trust him through my faith and my works, this suffering can be redeemed. That he will lead me through it to the blessing of drawing closer to him and becoming more like him on the other side. And y'all, maybe that's enough. And I don't know where you need to hear that. But in this last song, I just invite you to reflect where you need to ask God for wisdom, for trust, for the perseverance to see through it to some good news on the other side. And all I can tell you is that James promises here that if you do that, you might become some good news on the other side for someone else. Amen.